Amen. Thanks, Brother Zach. Yes, I need your prayers. I need your prayers every morning that I come up and I stand behind this wooden thing. I need them desperately, so thank you for... You have your... Uh... Guys, are we good with the mic? Okay. Um, got your Bible? Go to Daniel 4. Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to be going this morning. And we're just going to be looking at an insane story this morning about a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar, which... Uh, ironically enough, it is the story about King Nebuchadnezzar going insane. And so there, there's, a, there's, there's a way to tie all of that in. We're still in our series called The God Who Redeems. This is our 10th week. And uh, basically what we've been going through is stories of God restoring his people for his glory. And that's kind of sort of the, the thematically where we've been going through these passages. And if you haven't noticed, there's been a bit of a theme in these stories in that God has a track record of pulling men and women off their high horses in order to bring them into right standing with him. All right, so we see kind of a theme as we go through these biblical stories and we see how God deals with his people. And this morning we're going to see God's sovereignty and man's pride and how the two are linked together in our life. Because it's actually God's sovereignty over all things that breaks us from the burden and the beastliness of our pride, all right? And by sovereign, when we use this word sovereign and we use that word a lot, what that word means is possessing supreme or ultimate power, which means for us, only God fits that definition. And that's why we're able to this morning relate to a Babylonian king from thousands of years ago because all of us, all of us have suffered from the effects of pride. All of us have been wrong about something in our lives that we have pridefully staked everything on. All right, we've all been wrong about something that we've put everything on and it's been motivated by our pride and our arrogance. I mean, some of you are going to do that next week, man. Temperatures are going to hit 70 degrees. You guys are going to go to Target. You're going to buy some new patio furniture. You're going to set up your grill. And then we're going to get hit with a blizzard the week after because we live in a place called OHIO. Right? So that's gonna, you're going to be living out what I'm talking about on a very small and narrow scale. But our, our big idea today is simply this, is that God removes our pride so that we can be humble, restored, representatives of his glory. Let me say that one more time. God removes our pride. He makes us suffer losses so that we can become humble, restored representatives of his glory. Tim Keller said this about pride. He said, pride is that which claims to be the offer of what is really a gift. That's what Keller said about pride. I mean, man, I don't know if you guys noticed uh, our boy Kanye West uh, a few weeks ago. I mean, this dude is literally just out of control right now, man. He made three significant comments uh, on, his, on Twitter a few weeks ago that just blew up social media. Maybe you saw him, maybe you didn't. But if you didn't, here's what he said. He said, I am the greatest artist that has ever lived. It was the first thing he said. Number two, he said, I'm getting ready to drop the greatest album ever made. And then he said this, curiously enough. He said, I'm $53 million in debt. I have $53 million of personal debt. So if anyone's willing to donate me a billion dollars, I'm going to put that towards what I'm calling Kanye ideas. So that's where our boy Kanye West came into uh, social media with us a few weeks ago. 53 
million dollars in personal debt. And if somebody like Mark Zuckerberg can just loan me a billion dollars, it's not only going to pay off my debt. It's not only going to keep me as world's greatest living artist, but you're also going to help fund Kanye ideas. I mean, man, I'm not going to, I'm not going to feel bad about any of you buying me lunch ever again after a comment like that, man. I mean, we can giggle, but here's the thing. Kanye, man, he's just a dude with more Twitter followers and hopefully more debt um, who's just being who we all are inside. I mean, if God decides to humble Kanye, what it's going to be is an act of divine mercy. Just like if he decides to humble us and just like we're going to see today how he humbled King Nebuchadnezzar. So let's just go right into the text. Daniel chapter 4. Verse 1, follow along with me. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And then he says this, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Let's just stop there really quick, because if you remember the last chapter, last week when we were in chapter 3, and you saw King Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, getting ready to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace because they didn't worship his God. God saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar sort of makes a decree. And he says, here's the deal. Man, this is an effective God that we saw working on behalf of these three Jewish men. So my decree is we're going to place their God up into the pantheon of gods that we all worship. And nobody's allowed to say anything bad about the God that just saved uh, these leaders of the provinces of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so basically what we saw there was Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, man, this is a good God. He's up there with all of our gods, but he's not the God. He's not the one most holy, most righteous, only living God. So what happens is Nebuchadnezzar comes in here and he's saying, hey, let me tell you a story of what got me to the place to where I finally saw the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as the only holy, only living, all righteous, living God. And so that's what we're seeing today as he sort of gives us a a chronicle of something that happened to him to get him into that place, to break down his pride, to finally like just crack that, 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 that skull of pride that was so thick up top here that needed to be cracked so that in humility he could come before the Lord and give him all the glory that was due to the Lord. Because what happened was that Nebuchadnezzar, and if you remember last chapter, And he got to see God in action, didn't he? Remember when he looked into the fiery furnace and he said, we threw three guys in there, but there's four dudes in there. And when he called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out, man, there was no trace of the fire on them. Remember that? So Nebuchadnezzar, he got to see God in action. But really what happened with him right there is he became a fan. He just became a fan of God. He didn't really become a follower of God. And so the premise that I want to start out on tonight is maybe... That's you. Maybe you're one of those. Maybe you're like King Neb. Maybe you're just kind of a fan. You don't have any problem with any of this stuff. You're good with God. You think you're good with God. God's not offending you. You're a fan. You stand on the outside. You look 
and you go, man, I see how that works. I see how he works. I see how he works with some of the people in this church. I see how sometimes I feel a little warm and fuzzy when I'm around people who claim to be followers of him, but I haven't yet committed to him fully. I haven't yet committed my life and my heart fully under the rule and the authority of God because of the work of Christ on the cross. Maybe you're in that place. So that's how we're going to look at this story as a man who is chronicling his story about being in that place. So let's pick up. In verse 4, it says this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, what is at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they would not make known, they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. So he's getting ready to lay out the dream, and he says this, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let this mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and get this and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. So basically, Daniel gets the interpretation of the dream, but he's a little panicked because he's afraid of the implications and what they're going to be to Nebuchadnezzar, who might not like what he tells him, right? So he's a, he's a little nervous here. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. He's saying, it's cool, buddy. I just need to hear what it is. Good or bad, lay it on me. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw 
which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of the time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. Let's stop right there. So King Nebuchadnezzar has the kind of dream we all have, right, occasionally, This is a little more epic, probably, where we wake up and our first thought is that we're so glad it was only a dream, right? But this dream is so disturbing, it's so crazy for him that he assembles an entire panel, essentially, of graduates from Hogwarts School of Wizardry and Witchcraft to interpret the meaning of it and get this, and they fail. And they cannot give King Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the dream until a guy named Daniel comes in and he nails it. And so this is what he says in verse 24. He says, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So Daniel's like, I'm going to go big picture with you here, king. You're going to be driven out from the city, live with wild beasts, eat grass like an ox, and be wet with dew. That's what he lays out for the king. I mean, Daniel's not describing two weeks at Hilton Head here, all right? This is not a royal Caribbean cruise to Grand Cayman. That's not what he's laying out for the king here, which is what the king would have been used to receiving from the people interpreting his dreams for me. This is just a terrifying personal portrait of the most powerful man in the world being reduced to somebody who was going to lose all power and even over his own faculties unless he humbly acknowledges that God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So this is a warning to King Nebuchadnezzar. And then in verse 27, Daniel says this. He says, just hang on. Like, I just gave you the bad news, but listen. Listen to what I'm telling you right now. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. He says, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel says, here's what I got, Neb. Here's what I got for you after that bad news. Humble yourself. Put the brakes on this Kim Jong-un style of leadership or God's going to do something drastic. He says, practice righteousness. Show mercy and maybe just maybe... God will lengthen your prosperity because it's his to provide and prolong as he wills. 
This is all about what God has decreed and decided to do with your rule and reign, which is always underneath his ultimate rule and reign. I mean, call me crazy, but that sounds like a bit of a timely reminder for us right now, doesn't it? I mean, the political climate we're in right now is absolutely bonkers, all right? And yet God has not lost control of it for even one nanosecond. Has he? Do we believe that? I don't know. I see a lot of Christians that don't really believe that right now. For those of you who are a little more politically driven out there, let that give you bucket loads of hope and peace in the midst of a presidential race that has many Christians thinking America has literally just turned into Mad Max Road to Fury. Remember who your king is, brothers and sisters. Remember who your king is. We don't preach politics as substance, okay? That's not what I'm called to do, but I am called to remind you who our real king is. While praying, while honoring and respecting the earthly king that God decides will make it into office. You guys feeling me on that? So now that I just fixed politics and the presidential race, (laughs) what we'll see here is that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen to a word God's telling him through Daniel. But we should. Verse 28. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So you got King Nebuchadnezzar. He's walking on top of his royal palace. He's looking down, no doubt seeing something like the hanging gardens of Babylon, which would have been one of the seven wonders of the world. He's just looking at all of this glory and magnificence. And let's just be honest and just say, dude, it's hard to be humble sometimes. That's a hard gig for him to be humble about. I mean, we toss around the phrase, pride goeth before the fall. All of a sudden we become Shakespeare. We use the word goeth. Pride goeth before the fall without realizing what a prideful thing it is to look down at somebody else's pride, right? I mean, this is a dude that had a list of accomplishments that nobody here is ever going to touch. And success is like that, man. Success is kind of like an air mattress pump for the head, isn't it? It just inflates, inflates, inflates. And by success... I mean, I mean any success, any success. I mean, when's the last time you felt like you were, I am king of the world because someone told you that you were just good at something, right? How did that, how did that sort of like puff you up, man? Because we're kind of like that, aren't we? When people tell us that we're good, we feed off of that. We welcome it. We desire it. We want it. We're like peacocks, right? Feathers out, ready to conquer the world. Well, this is a guy who had conquered the world. And like us, he forgot that the world was not his to conquer, but that the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. Verse 31, and it just gets really real right now. While the words were still in the king's mouth, so homeboy doesn't even finish what he just said. There fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, 
and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Here's something we know about God from 1 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So in this, we see that God had been so merciful to Nebuchadnezzar. He'd been so gracious to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, my dad never gave me 12 months to get my stuff together for anything that I ever did growing up, right? But this guy gets caught in the act by his own words after failing to follow Daniel's counsel. Because pride, by its very nature, produces an obliviousness in us, doesn't it? I mean, that's why we're careful with our words. That's why we want to be careful with the way that we say things, with the way that we even phrase things. Because we want to give God glory. We want to remember that all things are His and that we don't really own anything. That's why I I used to cringe. It doesn't happen so much anymore, but I used to cringe when I would hear somebody referring to substance as Ronnie's church. Right? Because we forget what actually belongs to us. Man, and this church does not belong to me. I mean, that's just frightening and scary. So 12 months after he had a dream so scary that he had to call a board meeting, God gives him a warning that he forgets almost immediately. Nebuchadnezzar refused to submit his earthly rule to God's heavenly rule and authority. So what did God do? He removed him. He didn't remove his kingdom. He removed him from his kingdom and has him experience this werewolf-like transformation. Dude becomes a beast. Becomes a beast. His hair grows long. His nails become claws. He's completely removed. He's ostracized from society. His livelihood is reduced to that of an animal. And what a frightening commentary that is when we look at this. What a frightening commentary this is about man's pride and God's sovereignty. Because I think one of the most frightening things that we know about God is that sometimes he gives us what we want. He gives us what we want. He lets us sink to the depths of our depravity. And of course, it's not that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to become a madman. It's that he wanted to live like a self-made man. And God said, okay, let me give you a visual of just how low that can take you. And I mean, personally, I can tell you about somebody right now I know, who I've known for years in my life, who has fallen into something so similar as this. And you know what? He, he doesn't see it. He's oblivious to it. If you talk to him, he's going to shoot his mouth off about all the great things he's doing. But he's literally gotten to a place where he's living as low as low could be. But that's what pride does. It pollutes our thinking to the point that we lack logic. We don't even think with rationality and with reason. So whether you end up being taken to the extremes of what Nebuchadnezzar is taken to, a life lived in the throes 
of self-exaltation, a life that's lived in the throes of self-glory, it's like madness. It's like madness because the God of the universe is the one who decides who you will be. The God of the universe is the one who decides what you will have. I mean, seven years. You guys read that just like I did? Seven years. I mean, that's a long time to go without trimming your nails, buddy boy. I mean, that's a long time. So we see this vision in this picture of the creature becoming more creaturely when they forget about their creator. And we're not outside of that. We're not outside of that. And then this happens. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? So finally, Nebuchadnezzar's eyes turn heavenward, and his reason returns. And that's because the posture of a humble man is one whose face is down, but whose eyes are upward, away from himself, seeking the help that can only come from God. And so as he looks up from the filth that this earthly fortune has led him to, he regains his sanity. He's able to think rationally again. And look at what the first rational statement he makes is after howling at the moon for seven years. What does he do? He gives God his due glory. Your dominion is everlasting. Your kingdom endures. You do whatever you want according to your will. He says, none can stay your hand or even say, or even come before you and say, what have you done? I mean, that last line is really interesting, isn't it? Because we often shake our fists at God, either outwardly or inwardly. We say, how dare you do what you're doing? We say, man, I'm owed better than this. I don't deserve this. And here's what's interesting. We're definitely owed, but we forget just what exactly it is that we are owed. We forget that we're dust. Much loved dust. But dust, God's word reminds us of our lowliness. These songs we sing remind us of our lowliness. Though he slays me, reminds us of our lowly state before the Lord. Ronnie, that's just depressing. Why do you always sound so depressing? Well, pride is pitifulness, isn't it? Isn't self-centeredness really sadness? Isn't it just the saddest thing when you see someone trying to be someone else? Have you guys ever been in a karaoke bar? I mean, you know, when you see somebody singing karaoke and they're all like serious about it, it's like some of you out there right now. And they're like super serious about what they're doing. And they think they literally sound as good as, you know, whatever, Freddie Mercury singing Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, it's sad because it's, why? Because it's not true. They're not pulling it off. It's sad because they're deluded. It's sad because they've been drinking too much. (laughs) But that's what pride is. The ridiculous depths that our pride takes us to. And it makes things sad. It makes things silly. 
It brings us down to a level we can't even see because we've been brought to an alternate universe in our minds. That was Nebuchadnezzar. He was thinking he's somebody that he truly wasn't. Pride is believing a lie about yourself and living that out. Well, what's the opposite of pride? Well, it says in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. To praise, extol, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. Remember last week when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said God was able to save them from the fire, but whether he did or not, they wouldn't worship the golden image. Nebuchadnezzar says that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so many times God does this by crushing our abilities. We think we're able? Well, God is able to crush our ableness. God has the ability to remove our abilities until we stop taking credit for them. I mean, it's absolutely one of the worst things in the world when someone takes credit for something you've done, isn't it? And what pride is, is pride is us taking credit for what God has done. And yet, we see God's mercy displayed to us through Jesus' work on the cross. We're both this justice of God for taking credit for what he's done and the mercy of God who forgives us for that sin. We see that come together in an act of divine love, much in the same way that we see it enacted on Nebuchadnezzar right here. But pride takes a toll on us. Pride takes a toll. Here's three ways that pride takes a toll on us. Number one, and pride dehumanizes us. It has a way of stripping away our personhood. When we think of ourselves as godlike, what we lose in that is our own humanity. I mean, we talk about Kanye, right? It's cool to talk about Kanye. And Kanye, all these outrageous doses of arrogance, they cause people actually to form impressions of him that are more fictional than they are even flesh. And we don't even look at Kanye like he's a person. He almost like removes his own personhood with how arrogant and how prideful he is. We look at him like he's almost like a cartoon character because he kind of is. But we don't reflect the image of God's glory well when we relish in our own. Apart from God, interestingly enough, we will only ever fall into pride. Apart from God. Whereas Christ, on the other hand, being fully human and fully God, what he did was he embodied the fullest of those attributes by being devoted to the glory of another, which was his father. So pride dehumanizes us. Number two, man, it strips us of reason. Because the question we have to ask always is where are we getting our information? Who's telling us how to live? Because we're getting it from somewhere, meaning someone is pulling our strings at all times. None of us are original. None of us are coming up with something that's fully our own, that completely stands on its own. None of us are that artistic or creative at the end of the day. We're all getting our information for how to live from someone or something. And Nebuchadnezzar was not a reasonable or rational man before he experienced his outtake from one floor of the cuckoo's nest. He wasn't. 
Pride is an irrational desire to want to live autonomously with the belief that we're better off for it. God said, okay, go ahead. Dude started eating grass. A desire to live autonomously lacks reason and rationale because it's assuming that someone other than God could possibly have the knowledge of what's best for you. And you can also read how that worked out for a certain married couple in Genesis 3 named Adam and Eve too. So pride dehumanizes us. It strips us of reason. And number three, man, it keeps us groundless. It keeps us groundless. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, he was given a warning. He wasn't immediately removed from his kingdom. He was given a warning. Humble yourself or be humbled. And every time we go before the Lord in humble repentance, we're doing what Nebuchadnezzar didn't do. And humbling ourselves before we get too high, it avoids consequences that we may have never known existed if we hadn't. You guys ever play that game Jenga? Remember that game where you build the small tower with the tiny wood blocks and then remove the blocks until the tower collapses and falls? The problem is the higher the tower, the less secure it becomes, the more susceptible it is to, to falling and failing. And that's a picture of our pride. That's a picture of our pride. And that's why repentance is so important for us this morning. Because the takeaway with a story like this is that God takes away. And that God removes one of our biggest illusions, which is control. And he is so merciful when he does this. Because he doesn't allow our pride to deceive us into destruction. He saved Nebuchadnezzar. He allowed him to go to the depths so that he could finally see who was ruling in the heights. God is so faithful to remove the faith that we have in ourselves, isn't he? He does that for us repeatedly. Are there areas in your life of which you will not bow of which you will not relinquish your grip? Was there something in your life that you just go, "Mm mm-mm, it's mine? Are there areas in your life that you will not even receive a warning about? Just block it. I don't hear it. We're done here. Not talking about this anymore. I mean, what what are those areas in your life of which you're so self-assured? You know, those things where you you find yourself talking to people and you you, you make comments like this, I'm not trying to brag, but... Blank, blank, blank. A humble and repentant heart is one that's grounded in the sobriety of God's mercy, grace, and glory. And pride just becomes a barrier to those things. And not only that, but it becomes a barrier to happiness and wholeness in God. I mean, let me ask you this. Does Nebuchadnezzar, does he sound sad to you when his reason returns and he bursts out in praise and proclamation to the Lord? I mean, notice his words there. He's not saying how great it is that he can finally get a haircut, a manicure, and eat some good food, right? Instead of grass again. He's beside himself in gratefulness to God for being God. For finally having his eyes open to the one responsible for every earthly blessing he's received, including this temporary, well, seven years, and let's define temporary, this temporary bout with insanity. 
So how do, we, how do we locate our pride? How do we do that? How do we know if we're being prideful about something? How do we know if something is really pulling at us and tugging at us and we're just being blinded? Well, here's just, here's just some thoughts with that. Think of something in your life that you've never asked God to help you with. Now, there should be something just popping up right now when I say that. Think of something in your life you've never asked God to help you with. Think of something you've accomplished in your life that you've never given God credit for. To one another and to yourself or to God. Not enough? Think of something in your life that you've never thanked God for. You know, I had this, I was, I was praying the other day and I realized there was something I, I brought before him. And I realized in that moment, as I was thanking him for it, I realized that I don't know that I had ever done that. It was just this one particular thing in my life that maybe even from our standpoint wasn't even a big deal. I don't know that I had ever said, Lord, thank you for that in my life. And it was, in some, it was something that was not in a good place in my life because of it. Isaiah 66 says, All these things my hand has made. This is God talking. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And in the book of James, James says, God gives us more grace. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, submit yourselves before, therefore, to God. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. He's a real cheery guy, our boy James. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What a great comfort that is. Even with the heaviness and the darkness of those words. But what a great comfort knowing that we're part of a kingdom that is ruled by a sovereign Lord who built it on the death of His Son so that we wouldn't have to be casualties of our deathly pride. That our ruler deserves the glory He receives because He's the creator of all things. And so in that, when we experience losses, we understand that they lead us to see the things that we've truly gained. Here's what's amazing about God showing his mercy on us, even though we are so prideful, is that at the end, we don't have to be prideful. We don't have to be prideful. We're part of an everlasting kingdom ruled by a God who is merciful and kind and compassionate. And here's the final thing, in control overall. So our pride is like something in us that gnaws at us and eats at us because we feel like we need to have control. God is saying, here's the sitch. You don't. You don't have control. And what we see here, his treatment of Nebuchadnezzar is showing us that in no way are we ever under control of our own even faculties. It's all under God's sovereign hand because he has ultimate control over everything. You know what that does? It allows us to rest in the finality of God's ultimate control and his ultimate grace and his ultimate mercy over everything. 
It allows us to have peace. It allows us to not be driving at things of which God will eventually have to pull us down from and hit the ground. But even when that happens, that's mercy. That's God's mercy and grace towards us because he's kind, he's compassionate, and indeed he is in control overall. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for humbling us. Lord, thank you for showing your mercy and your compassion and your grace to us during those times that it feels severe and it feels like you remove things and it feels like we suffer losses. But we're just losing things that have gotten to a place in our life that you don't want us to have anyway. And that isn't doing us any good and that isn't causing us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. So Lord, thank you for those moments that like Nebuchadnezzar, you bring us to those moments of self-awareness. We see our sin. It's so clear. You let circumstances and consequences bear down on us. Lord, we can despair over those things or we can come before you and say, Lord, what is it that, that you're trying to teach me in these moments? What was it that you were trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar? Well, that his control was in illusion. And although that can be scary for us, ultimately what it does is it bolsters our faith. Because it means that we don't have to hold on so tightly to something of which we actually don't have a grasp on. So Lord, continue to humble us. Do this work in us. Let us see that your control and your sovereignty over all of these things is such a beautiful, beautiful thing for us. And that we can look at all of these things in our lives, whatever areas that we're experiencing uh, pressure in our lives, Lord, and we can hand those things over to you, trusting that it's that merciful touch, it's that merciful hold over our lives that will remove whatever it is that is keeping us distant from you. Because you love us, nothing can ever tear us from you like we sang today. So Lord, let us see you anew. Let us see you with fresh eyes. Let us see you with more grateful eyes. Let us receive this mercy and grace from you this morning with grateful hearts, Lord, as we sing of your faithfulness to us, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.